0: So, uh, we're glad you're here with us. So, uh, I got to meet Lance real briefly this morning, glad he's joined us. He's a a member from years back, so you can say hi to him. And uh, Stephanie's here with us. She's not been able to be with us for a while, and I heard it's her birthday tomorrow, so that's exciting. But anyone who's coming to join us, we're so thankful you're here. And uh, we are continuing this series, "The Kingdom of God." And uh, I'm trying to be fairly comprehensive with it. And so this is not an idea that just happens in the gospel. The seeds of this kingdom of God, they are throughout the Bible and our scriptures. And I think there's a lot of treasure there for us to mine and consider, and as we grow in our understanding and we grow Uh, in our knowledge of the fullness of what Jesus Christ offers us in his life and in his person, Uh, and then we begin to imagine ways that our life can be more like his, the fruit of that is a beautiful thing. And it is the hope of this world that people can become more like Jesus in the way we think, the way we act, what our lives and priorities are about. And so last week, we said uh, when Jesus came, when John the Baptist came and then Jesus came, the content of what Jesus talked about the most and what he really announced was this idea of the kingdom of God now available, not based on your heredity, not based on all of these things, your education, socioeconomic background, not your gender, uh, nationality. It just, he announces in himself that this, in himself, that this new kingdom is now available. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So this time has come. I like translations that say the time is fulfilled. It means that history has been building up to this point, this life of Jesus Christ. And the word repent, uh, literally it means think it out again. Think about your life management strategies. What's your strategy for life? How do you go about living? Well, I wanna save this money, I wanna do this, I wanna accomplish these things, I wanna marry this person, I wanna have these kids or not have these kids because kids are terrors or whatever your idea is. We all have life strategies. And Jesus comes to us and he says, think about your life, think it out again, your life strategy in light of this kingdom that is available to you to live in even now in this life. Not just pie in the sky by and by, but even now in this life. You see, your life doesn't have to be one giant Hunger Games episode. Uh, in competition with everyone else, fighting for limited resources. If this physical world is all there is, uh, you can almost justify a kind of do-to-others-before-they-can-do-to-me kind of attitude. And uh, if someone gets in my way, well, they should have known better. And if I have to stomp on a few people and push them out of the way to get, take care of me and get my own, well, so be it. They should have known better. If this life is all there is, that's kind of what we're left with. But in his life, in his teaching, and in his person, Jesus Christ becomes a gateway to a whole other way of living. And so one of the takeaways that we had from last week that I wanted you to consider is that the Gospels, they don't begin in the Gospels. There is a whole history and a story there that we just run right past it, and the Gospels don't end in the Gospels either. They continue in force to this very day. And so last week, we looked at the kingdom of God in Torah in the life of his special called out people and we're continuing that story today so by way of review the seeds of the kingdom of god that were planted in the jewish or the hebrew soul they look forward to a land flowing with milk and honey which our god has promised us they look forward to the promise that one day they will be a mighty nation where god will defend us from all of our foes. Where he will make us great, where we will live in unimagined peace and plenty. And all we have to do is to keep God's commands. God gives us Hesed, and we must give him Hesed, covenant loyalty, steadfast love. And even there is this hope that from us there will come one day a divinely sent leader whom all the nations will serve. And so those scripture references there are good verses to look at. So these early seeds of this special kingdom belonging to God, they continue to be developed and they sprout further in the conquest, conquest of a specific realm, a specific promised land that was given. And this is conceived of in terms of a physical geography, Given to the Jewish people, uh, a specific nationality chosen by God to do a specific work. The work of the Jewish people, it was a priestly function, and they had a role in bringing knowledge of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord to the nations. That is their irrevocable, eternal charge from God. So we're going to look at today the of God in the conquest. So if you are curious and you want to be reading in the scriptures about this, we're talking about uh, the sermon today, Joshua, Judges, First and 2nd Samuel, the main content that we're kind of dealing with this morning. So this conquest, a lot of us Christians have a big problem with it just because we try to reconcile the brutality of it with our our, our notions and our sensibilities of more of a refined modern age. So no doubt this conquest that took place, it was, and the scriptures uh, testify to this, it was a judgment against the grievous sins of the Canaanite nations. Horrible things happening in these Canaanite city-states and the city-states that are around um, uh, the ancient Near East at that time of the day. Um, But I would just like to say that, you know, I think it's kind of fruitless to try to frame and dismiss the harshness of this conquest and just as a way to make it more palatable for us, uh, less offensive to our modern uh, political correct kind of uh, enlightened understanding. We would use terms like that. Uh, This was just harsh. And these people didn't think like we think, necessarily. And uh, we can just let it speak as it is, and we try to wrestle with it as it is. Don't try to water it down, don't try to belittle it. Um, Just let some of the harshness of what is taking place speak to you and deal with it on that level. So I would just say, too, while the geography has changed, and the battlefield is very different than the battlefield that they were uh, looking at, the heart of God remains the same. There is a harshness to God that we need to acknowledge. And uh, it's not just Santa Claus and puppy dogs, and God expects things from us, and he is a jealous God. So as we talk about this idea of kingdom, the, the heart of God remains the same. The Holy Spirit is not interested in compromise. The Holy Spirit has an agenda, and that agenda is takeover. He wants our whole hearts and our whole allegiance. But God is love. And so God does not coerce. He does not force his will upon us. Instead, he is patient. He waits for us. He woos us. He doesn't manipulate us. He just waits patiently for our hearts to reach out to Him, to seek Him, to come to Him. So even though our battlefield is different, it's no longer, our battle is no longer against flesh and blood. We still fight a zealot's war, if you will. Uh, And one of the greatest fields battlefields that we have to address, and each of us on an individual level, is your own heart. Your own heart. And you have to reach a decision in the battle of your own heart. What is your life going to be about? What life strategy are you going to follow? Who is going to be your God? I hope it's not the tyranny of serving the God of yourself and a narcissistic kind of focused life. But each of us has to deal with this battle in our hearts. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with his words? What are you going to do with the claims that he makes, the desires that he expresses? Well, Before there could be a spiritual kingdom, there was a physical one. I would say in the story of the conquest, God meets humanity in places and using means that we are able to understand through anything through the sacrificial system to the way the conquest took place. God chooses to meet us In ways that we are able to conceive. And even if they seem less than ideal, he takes things that seemingly are less than ideal and he moves them toward a greater understanding and a greater reality. Uh, And so the conquest of this physical kingdom of Israel, it ends up being more brutal and more costly in terms of life uh, uh, because of the unfaithfulness of the Israelite people. But when they are faithful, uh, this angel of the Lord goes ahead of them. Uh, When the people are faithful, city walls fall down by themselves. Peoples melt away before the Israelite nation without the Jewish people even having to lift a finger for that to happen. And so the Lord even promised this to them. He said, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. And I will make all of your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and the Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. So even though there are bumps along the way, a kingdom is formed. And all the ideas and all the lessons that they are learning now in this physical kingdom, it is building toward a fuller understanding of what the kingdom of God is and what the kingdom of God is like. So early Israel is a kind of theocracy. But even from the very beginning, it is clear already to many that there are a lot of things happening in this kingdom that, in fact, they are not the will of God. There's a lot of bad stuff already in the beginning happening, even as this land is being conquered. So, again, keep in mind, I'm tracing this meta narrative of the kingdom of God in very broad strokes through the scriptures. But the fortunes of the ancient Jewish peoples, they are directly tied to covenant loyalty and faithfulness to God. And so we see this cycle through the Exodus. We see this cycle through Joshua into the time of Judges and beyond that, where faithfulness means fruitfulness and times of thriving when they are faithful. But then, inevitably, sin creeps in, idolatry, and every other kind of disloyalty to, the, to uh, the Lord their God. And it never seems to take very long when things, when they turn away from the Lord, that things fall apart. God holds back his blessings. Things uh, fall apart very quickly. And then the people are oppressed, uh, usually by the nations around them. And then they cry out to the Lord for deliverance and help. And because God is a compassionate God, he raises up a charismatic leader, a special leader who has a special anointing of his Holy Spirit, who serves as God's instrument of deliverance. And so we see this whole cycle in the judges, these charismatic military leaders who are are raised up and anointed by the Lord to deliver his special people and call them back to faithfulness. So, these judges were not kings, and in fact, they go to great pains to avoid that title or that understanding, and uh, they refuse to become monarchs, by and large, of the Jewish people. So, up to this time of the judges and through the judges, the kingdom of Israel was always about the direct rule of God himself— over the people through his designated representatives, the man or the woman of the hour, but not monarchy and all that monarchy entails. And this isn't an accident that they wanted the direct rule of God. It was a very intentional decision that they made because monarchies were everywhere around them. It was the only other example out there. Everyone had a monarchy. Everyone had a king. It was Israel. Who is very uh, peculiar and different in this regard. And so by the time the judge uh, Gideon arrives, he says this about uh, uh, when they try to put, uh, give him kingship, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So you can see something of that mind and that ancient understanding of this special leadership that God provides and uh, uh, the oversight and protection he gives over the nations. But as time goes on, new threats arise, uh, greater military threats than Israel had ever faced before, greater military threats than uh, Canaanite city-states, city independent Canaanite city-states had ever been a threat. Uh, they were, it, it was a whole nother level coming uh, of, of military threats to Israel that seemed impossible in the minds of the, these Jewish people, impossible for a militia from a loose tribal coalition to be able to handle. And so we read all about these peoples who came and they oppressed. People's Of the sea, they were called, or the Philistines, and they come with iron chariots. They're a well-organized military state with a professional army, and they're highly disciplined and well-armed, professional soldiers, and they were very systematic about making their plans and going about their conquest of the nations around them. And not since Egypt, had the fledgling nation of Israel faced a military threat like this. And in fact, about 1050 BC, Israel was soundly defeated in a national humiliation that led to the capture of the Ark of the Covenant and ended with Philistine garrisons in the heart of Israel and the entire nation being disarmed. You couldn't even find a sword in all of the land. You can read about that if you're curious in 1 Samuel 4 and following. So Samuel comes to this scene, and he represents the last of the judges. And as an old man, uh, and it's clear that Samuel's own sons, like Eli's sons, they did not walk in their father's ways, and they were unfit for leadership of the people. And so the Israelites ask Samuel to anoint for them a king, And uh, Samuel's really upset about this. And so he takes this uh, to the Lord in prayer. And God tells him basically this. He says, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Rejecting the Lord himself as king over the people. So God tells Samuel to warn them about what a heavy burden it's going to be to have a king rule over you and what that's going to be like. But the people would not be deterred. The people would not listen. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over. We want a king over us in your best whiny voice. Then we'll be like the other nations. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. All the things that the Lord their God had in fact been doing for them. But how quickly we forget. And I don't want to be too harsh with them and what they faced from uh, my life of relative ease in a modern world. Uh, Because haven't you ever been in a situation yourself where you thought, you know, God, if you're there, I don't know if you're going to show up. I can't control you. So Lord, you're taking a long time. And I'm afraid you're probably not going to do things the way I would like anyway. So I think I'd better just go ahead and take care of this myself. Isn't that the human condition, the human story, apart from Jesus Christ? <clears throat> so I don't want to be too harsh with the desire that they have uh, for a king, a special representative, to be like the nations, to take care of certain things that kings are expected to do. And so, But there's a significant shift in this movement away from this idea of a direct rule of God himself over the peoples and over a special kingdom. And so in choosing a king, of course, the people get a whole lot more than they bargained for. So I used to work as a missionary, as church planter among the Sukuma tribe in Tanzania, East Africa, and they had a perfect, a perfect parable for this very situation. It's kind of like the idea of out of the frying pan into the fire kind of thinking. So they're uh, parable was this. When the wild pig comes, you jump into the tree. Only after do you realize the tree is filled with thorns. And I think, boy, that is the reality of what the kings represented in ancient Israel. And so Samuel, he goes and he anoints a charismatic young man, Saul, to be king. And in many ways, Saul was a lot, he functioned a lot like a judge with a little bit better title, a little bit more power and responsibility, special guards that he had. But he was kind of a small step away from the old system and just kind of a small step into this new reality. Uh, Saul starts out great. He is anointed and he is in, in very much in the way of the judges. He has a special outpouring of uh, the charismata or the Holy Spirit, but then the Holy Spirit departs from Saul, and Saul sins against the Lord. And then you have this whole anointing of another young man, a man who uh, who has a different kind of heart. Uh, And the spirit of the Lord, when David is anointed, it says it comes on David in power. And so David is an even better king than Saul. And David becomes the king that all future kings would be measured against. The house of David or the line of David. But even so, as you read these stories, there is an awful lot of blood on David's hands. And then in 2 Samuel 11, you have this whole fiasco of this adultery with Bathsheba. And so from Bathsheba on, the house of David is a lot like back-to-back episodes of the Jerry Springer show. It's a mess. And this is the kingdom of God? So in David, there is a formalization of this role of king with professional army and uh, uh, surveys of the land and taxation and all these other things start to happen in David and after David that hadn't been there before. And so no longer is the leadership of the Jewish nation based on a special anointing of the Spirit of the Lord, but rather leadership is based on heredity. Solomon onward uh, and the other kings that followed are kings by lineage rather than charismata, or rather than the special anointing of the Holy Spirit. So I, Solomon had special wisdom, and there's special things that, that goes on, but uh, the language changes with David. And if you want to help me search this out, I think that this special anointing of the Holy Spirit, from what I can tell... It does not follow in the line of the kings after, later on. And so, uh, I didn't have time to look at all of this, uh, but you can read from 2 Samuel on, First uh, and Second Kings, look in the Chronicles if you like, that something shifts with David. And suddenly there are rulers that are born into it rather than rulers who have a special anointing of the Spirit of the Lord. All right, so the kingdom of God as it develops in the conquest. So in the conquest, they now have a specific land. Israel has a land of their own. They have a place they call home. They have cities. They have borders. And even with all of this, people are beginning to realize that there's a lot of things happening in this kingdom, that are not the will of God, are still not what God desires. And then this whole cycle begins. When people are faithful to the Lord, they thrive. And when they sin against the Lord, they are oppressed. And when they are oppressed, the people cry out to the Lord. And because God is gracious, he raises up a charismatic leader who has a special anointing of his Holy Spirit. To help deliver the people and call them back to faithfulness. And so you see this cycle again and again and again in the Judges especially. It's in Joshua Judges, First uh, and Second Samuel. You see this whole pattern repeating itself. And then you find the Israelites rejecting the direct rule of God and choosing a monarchy. We want a king over us. Then we'll be like other nations. And the Lord God saying to Samuel, they've not rejected you as king. They've rejected me as their king. And there's this whole shift that takes place. And it begins in Saul. It's continued to David. And in David now, uh, instead of a charismatic leader being chosen who has a special anointing of the spirit of the Lord, Instead, these rulers are chosen by heredity and who your daddy was and that kind of stuff. And the story of the prophets of Israel is the story of a people who time and uh, 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 the story of Israel It's the story of a people who time and time again walk away and reject the Lord their God. And... God faithfully calls back to them. But in this new kingship that happens, uh, you read through these stories, and with a few, there are a few notable exceptions, but the, the Jewish people get a lot more than they bargained for in these kings. And they seem to go from bad to worse, to even worse after that. And the unfaithfulness on a national level, and the idolatry on a national level. Uh, And so that is the continuation of the story. So, a couple weeks from now, Lord willing, we're going to talk about how the kingdom of God developed in the time of the prophets. Uh, Next week, Alicia and I are going to be at a minister's couple retreat. And. We'll be, a, a lot of other ministers, we're meeting there for that, and that should be a good time, but you have uh, our brother James, Lord Willen, is going to be uh, giving us our sermon next week, and then two weeks from now, we'll be talking about the kingdom of God and the prophets. So that's our sermon today. But the people of God, uh, it was clear very early on that this kingdom that they had built, this this kingdom that is conquered by blood, it is less than it was supposed to be. Their kings were less than they were supposed to be. The people deserve better kings than the ones they got. As a people, they did not keep their covenant faithfulness. And as a people, they were failing in their role to become a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. And so even while there were kingdoms that were there and there were kingdoms that existed, before the northern kingdom is annihilated, before the uh, Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the southern kingdom, even while kingdom is still there, there is a prophetic hope that is born in the hearts of the people for the kingdom of God to come in truth and for a restoration of this ideal kingdom of the heart to be born among a special people. And we'll talk about that in upcoming weeks. So, Dylan, you can come on up here. Uh, Even while there's still a Jewish kingdom, this hope is born. And so... uh, my invitation today, of course, you need the prayers of this church. We want to we pray for you if you want to put the Lord on a baptism. We want to serve you and journey with you. Uh, but also the invitation is to consider these stories and consider what they are building toward and uh, look at what the, God, uh, the Lord your God might be inviting you to consider as you trace this idea, as we do this together as a church, this idea of the kingdom of God and a kingdom of purpose, a kingdom of priests to be a holy nation and a light to the nations of this world. So even while there is still a Jewish kingdom, hope is born of a new king that would come in the line of David, a king who would once again be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. A king who would lead the nation of Israel to become the kingdom of God in truth. Even while this kingdom was being conquered and everything that happened with these kings, there is a hope that is born for an ideal kingdom with an ideal king to help this nation become who they were intended to be. And so that hope drives people on. And you can see these seeds of the kingdom of God alive in these ancient Jewish souls. Alive in these ancient Jewish souls that helps them continue on. And it comes out in messianic words and messianic hopes that come later on. You can see some of these hopes expressed in in prophets like Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor We'll accomplish this. Let's stand and sing.